we are experiencing a paradigm shift. A fundamental change in the way we usually do things. We are intentionally choosing to see the silver lining. Opportunity arises. We can shine a light on the things that weren't working well, on those things that weren't really working at all. We can regroup, reevaluate, and re-engineer. It's time to explore new patterns and paradigms. Those that inspire us to rise above the chaos and explore how the conditions of today can take us to a better tomorrow. Patterns and Paradigms, the Pattern Podcast, from Hudson Valley Pattern for Progress. You're listening to Episode 7, Election Day is Done, What's Next? With your host, Pattern President and CEO, Jonathan Drapkin. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Patterns and Paradigms. You may hear in the background my wind chimes as there are wind gusts of up to 60 miles an hour here in Sullivan County. In last week's episode, we had a spirited discussion with Kent Gardner of CGR and Michael Andolo looking at the future of regional economic development and restructuring of local government. As the pandemic and the disrupted economy continue, we will undoubtedly return to this subject. If you have any questions or comments, please send them to patternforprogress.org slash podcast. And please remember to subscribe to our podcast, which is available on Apple, Amazon Music, Spotify, Google, TuneIn, and Stitcher. This week's Pattern and Paradigm Trend. In keeping with an election day theme for this episode, prior to Tuesday, some states are already above their 2016 turnout for voting, while many are close to it. Now, whether this is a trend with regard to voting in presidential elections, you will have to be with us four years from now. It is a strong sign of engagement for this election, and we think that is a good thing. And that happened despite some efforts to inhibit voting. So it is ironic that this year's turnout may in fact be the largest ever. In light of election day, we're going to have a special edition of Power Patterns and Paradigms. While we recorded the episode on Friday, October 30th, it is airing today, November 4th, the day after election day. Myself and our guests did our best to avoid any predictions that we would be sorry about, but I think a few of them still found their way in there. Our segment with Joe on Patterns Activities will be back with us next week in order to devote more time to our special guests. Dr. Gerald Benjamin, Emeritus Founding Director of the Benjamin Center, Distinguished Professor of Political Science, and the Associate Vice President for Regional Engagement, all at the State University of New York at New Paltz, and our other guest, Liz Benjamin, a veteran of two decades of reporting on state and local government, during which time she hosted Must See TV, Capital Tonight here in New York, and was also the editor of the show's blog, The State of Politics. And yes, for those of you keeping track, they are father and daughter. And between them, their knowledge of state and local government is simply extraordinary. 
Jerry and Liz, welcome to the show. How are both of you doing? Dad, you want to take that one? (laughs) (laughs) Doing fine. Uh, Thank God my family all is healthy and uh, safe and uh, keeping a low profile and uh, trying to remain interesting and uh, interested and active in in, uh, New York uh, matters. Mm. I guess I could just say I'm still here. (laughs) <laughs> We're all still here, which is the most positive thing that one can say these days, right? I think so. And I think um, the, the notion of remaining positive throughout this is going to have to be part of our DNA. Um, so let, let's just jump in. Some have said that this is the most consequential election in our lifetimes. Do you agree? Disagree? You know, I feel like that's a phrase that's been tossed around quite a bit. Um, and I'm not sure necessarily, and each time that it is employed, it is certainly, you can make a case for it and you can make a case against it. I don't know, never have we had this particular set of circumstances necessarily, but the mo- I mean, every election is consequential. It matters in people's lives. Uh, this one is significant, of course. We have an ongoing pandemic. We have the attendant economic fallout that is hitting New York in particular very hard and is going to probably take years to recover from New York. Uh, We're going a little slower, particularly in New York City. So it's very significant, but I mean, the most significant, I don't know, that's a little hyperbole. Well, and and Jerry, any contextualization of this? The first point I would say is that my lifetime's longer. So it covers, it covers a bigger period of time. I, I think that uh, it probably is the most important election in my lifetime. And, and the reason for that is that it, it, it engages the, the, the persistence and survival of our system of government. Now, I think that uh, that the system has been eroding. It's... it's, it's, it's uh, its challenges that it currently faces didn't just arrive in whole cloth, but uh, we have a leadership not committed, in my opinion, not committed to a democratic process, and we have an elevation of the executive at every level in government to the uh, at the cost of the representative branch, and uh, we have a, a contempt for democracy that we discover is shared by a significant portion of, of our population. So uh, I, I think that makes it important beyond the immediate kinds of concerns, economics, social, which are very challenging and very uh, contentious. So that, that's my view. And, and, and historically, um, is, I, I go all the way back to, you know, following Lincoln, uh, Lincoln's assassination. The presidential election resulted in a Republican group of um, people that were responsible for creating the um, adjustments that were made after the Civil War, and that was consequential, and then jump up to, you know, 1968, and, and that was consequential. So is it that we really, it's the lived experience that this is happening to us now, and that's closer to what Liz is saying, that maybe it's not the most consequential, but it's happening now. 
versus historically there were other consequential presidential elections. I guess what I'm getting at is that the uh, I, I've spoken to enough people that have said is that this is the most important moment in time. I, for one, had always thought the 60s as a totality was the most important period of time. 2020 is clearly giving the 60s a, a run for its money, but there have been other consequential uh, times of consequence, in which case I'm looking for, is there a sense that because we're living through it that we don't understand, yeah, there've been other times like this? Well, particularly if you're young, you don't have any reference point other than what you've read in history books or learned in school. But, you know, the 60s, you bring up the 60s, and certainly there's a lot of echoes of the 60s that we're seeing here, civil unrest, a call for widespread change, uh, significant clashes that are occurring in the street. And then layered on top of that is the added stress and threat of the ongoing worldwide pandemic. I mean, I don't know that we've ever had at this moment so many corresponding layers of problems but, you know, I, I mean, if I had been alive in, during the Civil War, maybe I would have said something different to you. So I, I, I think that a lot of it has to do with context. And to some degree, this is I mean, it's an interesting question to debate. But it's an esoteric question. I mean, what really what we really want is to motivate people to get engaged. And if this, in fact, has motivated people to get engaged. And it seems like it since we saw all these crazy lines of people waiting to vote and, you know, young people really engaged and maybe to the level of the Obama uh, elections. We don't know because we'll have to see the numbers and, you know, final tallies there. Um, and I don't know. And, and, and Dad, you, you might be able to, to chime in on this, but I don't know if ever the threat to democracy in terms of the question of the veracity of the vote has ever been this widespread and significant because of the mail added complexity of the mail-in ballot surge? Well, it's, it's not the most consequential election in American history, that's for sure. It's not. It's not. It's interesting. Most interesting. consequential election in American history, a list, 1800, the orderly transference of power from one party to another, very important. 1860, the election of Lincoln, which triggered uh, the Civil War, which could have destroyed the nation, very important. 1876, with the Electoral College deadlocked and, and, and the system could have collapsed had they not negotiated an outcome, however problematic. Uh, 1928, and, and the management of the Depression. Uh, you raised the 60s, which I think are a very close analogy to, contem to, to contemporary times. So you're right. I mean, people, I, uh, more than right, perfectly right to say that people are presentist and don't have a, an historic uh, context. Um, I also think that uh, one thing that's happened to me now that we were kind of shut in is I am actually watching television that's not baseball. <laughs> and and, and uh, so I'm binging on some shows. <laughs> Like the shows that I never saw, like The Secretary, which which everybody uh, saw but me, uh, the Secretary of State, Madam Secretary. Madam Secretary. And I, I feel like the election is people saying we've been living through this, every episode of this bizarre <laughs> experience, and we're going to get to the, see how it comes out, except they may not. <laughs> the following season. So, well, so uh Look, Liz, what are you watching? I, I find this I find this funny because um, you know, first of all, 
he's never been a television <laughs> aficionado, but um, I'm not. And I and I actually there was an interesting story uh, in the news this morning on the morning that we're having this conversation that Netflix is actually raising its rates, which is probably going to make people really angry. <laughs> but um, I've tried a bunch of shows that were really popular with people and. Um, I can't really get into any of them. The problem might be that I stare at a computer screen all day long and I'm not really interested in staring at any more screens at the end of the day. Um, and in, uh, part of the one of the vagaries of working at home is that you really never stop working. There, there's just no uh, real work life balance. I mean, my work and life is taking place in the same place. Like literally I could get up and walk five feet to get to the home bedroom and the home kitchen and the home bathroom. Right. So it's not, um, I find that my work is taking up a lot of time. I don't really have a lot of, um, opportunities for binge watching. I, I guess I tried Shit's Creek. I, a lot of people like it. I tried the Ozarks. A lot of people like that. My husband really enjoyed Queen of the South. I couldn't get into it too violent. Um, I just just can't really get into any of it, unfortunately, which makes me pretty boring. But no, I don't know if it makes me boring. It's kind of interesting. We we run a, a mid career um, training program called the Pattern Fellows Program, and the we do these um, icebreaker questions. And every year, um, I thought it would be an interesting question to ask: What book are you reading? Well, after a while, it got to a point where I, people were saying, well, I don't really read books. I, I, I watch Netflix. Well, so then this year I said, what are you watching on Netflix? And they said, oh, in the pandemic, I've gone back to reading books. <laughs> and I've said, I can't win. I can't uh, win. Yeah. So I, all right, I'm glad for the book resurgence, actually. And I'm I'm really I find it amusing that, you know, one's backdrop. Apparently, that's like a thing now that if you don't have the power broker on your bookshelf behind you in your <laughs> you know, Zoom call or your team's call, then particularly in certain circles, you know, you're you've definitely come down a few pegs. Right. I have mine, by the way, it's downstairs. I do own the power broker. So just in case anybody was wondering, and this went to journalism school at Columbia. They signed the power broker. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure they did. I, mine's here. It's in different. It's all broken up. But um. right. And she 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 told me that. And I said a good 400 page book that takes a thousand pages to read. You know? oh, <laughs> all right. Let's take you. It's the day after election. Voter turnout. Um, the screen on 60 Minutes said yesterday that. 60% of the voters had already cast the ballot um, as of yesterday. Are we heading to just a, an incredibly record turnout? I hope so. I mean, you know, what's interesting, though, is that the president, in all his wisdom or lack thereof, basically was like questioning you know, uh, there's going to be widespread fraud and all these mail-in ballots, et cetera, and so forth. And I wonder if that sort of, he shot himself in the foot because people were like, holy, I can't do this mail-in thing. I got to go show up at early voting instead. And so people are waiting on these lines. And in New York, you know, which, which is interesting, you can mail your absentee in and then change your mind and go in person and they void your absentee and they take the ballot that you filed um, in person. Um, so you actually can, you can do both. You can vote twice, <laughs> but only one vote counts. Uh, I guess you could change your mind if you felt like it. I mean, I happened to vote absentee, um, and said a little prayer when I dropped it in the mailbox, but, uh, I think a lot of people, um, 
are concerned because the president has raised the question and the specter. And also they've seen the reports about the U.S. Postal Service and, and the changes and the cuts that have been made there. And they're experiencing it. You buy something on Amazon, it takes you three weeks to get it. So maybe you shouldn't mail, by, mail your ballot in. Jerry? Well, you know, I, I think there's been a very, very high level of stimulus. Um, I expect when we look at the numbers, finally, we're going to see that elevated participation in every de de demographic, but the same differences among demographics maintained, relatively speaking. Uh, I, I think it's a lot easier to vote. And uh, there's a lot of different ways you can vote now. And there's a longer time period to voting. So there's some issues go away, like, can I get a babysitter? Mm -hmm. I don't drive in the rain. My spouse has the car. You know, all those... Uh, all those uh, impediments uh, are diminished. We still have legal challenges in New York that we have to deal with on this. So, uh, turn, and yet, if we get massive turnout, we'll still have a third to, to a third or more of the of the eligible population not voting. So that's a remaining uh, a remaining challenge. Well, is this one of the ironies of this election that, with all the talk of voter suppression? it may in fact be the largest turnout ever. And is that an irony or, is, or would you two like to destroy that concept? Well, first of all, even if it's the largest turnout ever, as dad just mentioned, it's not enough. I mean, you know, even if we get to 50%, still not enough. And this is something that, you know, when I did have a, a public platform, now I've, I, you're giving me a brief return to my soapbox, which I really appreciate. But I used to rail up against this and, and just, you know, call on people. The, the turnout is pathetic. And, and some of that is because people in New York think that their vote doesn't count because, you know, it's going to the state's going to go to Biden. So, oh, well, why should I bother? But there's a lot of contested state races and congressional seats. And so every four years, you know, and the presidential race does traditionally cause an uptick in turnout. Uh, and and really, but this it's the very foundation of our democracy, your capability of voting. And so you should exercise it. It's it's a, an amazing privilege and a right, but also what's expected of you as a citizen of this country and this state. That's just it's a pretty low bar for your citizenship. <laughs> you don't really have to do very much. All you have to do is go to the go. Just go to the polls, get some basic information about who you're looking at and make a choice. That's all we ask of you. And uh, we don't ask for very much. So I think that that uh, the participation and, you know, the Democrats, since they took over control of the state legislature, have certainly made some inroads toward trying to make it easier to vote. But, you know, some countries pay people to vote. Some some countries give you the whole day off. Some countries like Peru fine you if you don't vote. And then uh, subsequently, you're not actually eligible to go to a publicly funded college if you have not voted, for example. I mean, I'm not suggesting we get that draconian, but it, I, I think that we need to do more to encourage people to participate. Jerry, any, any you know- How can I be against more voting? No, I yeah. know that you couldn't be against more voting, but I, I often, I think back to the 60s also, and I know that you and I sort of have lived through that experience and that, even that didn't cause more people to come out and vote. So I just hope that the numbers are trending in the way that they suggest that there will be more turnout. We did make it easier for people to vote. Well, I think and that, uh, you know, I think we're looking at a competitive national election and that's a motivator. 
And Absolutely. Had, and when you look at, uh, Liz made the very good point that this is not the only election uh, happening this year. And in fact, uh, the United St people in the United States are asked to vote for more offices than in any other country on, on the same date in the same circumstance. And they're asked to vote more frequently than people in any other country because we have primary elections and we have local elections and we have all these uh, responsibilities that voters have. So uh, we, we demand we demand relatively more of voters than most than most countries do. And uh, it's fundamentally important for legitimizing and sustaining the political system, which is my initial point. But but we need to have a competitive environment, and and in New York we're we're uh, increasingly non-competitive in most places. And uh, people looking at no effective choice are not encouraged to vote just to make a statement that voting is a good thing. Well, and to be clear, we're actually moving into a, a, a era when we're probably going to have even less competition, I expect, because there's going to be another round of redistricting. And given the trends that we've been seeing in New York in terms of Democrat growth in registration, and out migration that continues in upstate New York in particular, um, you're likely to see, and if the Democrats maintain, which is expected, control of the legislature, which means they're controlling the legislative redistricting process, you're going to see uh, less gerrymandered districts, which is certainly positive, but as a result, they'll be less competitive for Republicans, which is kind of a switch because Republicans controlled the redistricting process and drew the line specifically to benefit them. But now you're going to see the Democrats redraw the lines based on a more realistic outlook of what the trends in the registration looks like and the population looks like. And as a result, you're going to have a lot more intra-party battles and more regional battles as, you know, conservative versus pragmatic versus liberal Democrats all vying for various different. Uh, all right, we're shifting the competitive environment to, uh, to the primary elections. Yeah, right. So uh, something I'm writing about now, which is less attended to, is a very high proportion of New York elected officials elected in special elections. Right. Vacancies that arise. I, I just counted by chance, I happened to be counting yesterday, the number of special elections in the two, last two decades of the state legislature, and there were upwards of 65. So um, these are low turnout elections. So we're talking about turnout in the general election, but the decisions are going to be in the low turnout elections held in less visible times, less expected times for voters. And you look at these elections and they're, and they're quite close in a lot of jurisdictions that are regarded as non-competitive. You look at special elections in the Bronx or primary elections in certain parts of Brooklyn, which are overwhelmingly uh, democratic, and you find that you're getting, you're getting six, seven, 8,000 voters, but the, the, the election is decided by two or 300 votes. So- Why you need to vote. You have to have competition. <laughs> Just but, saying. But Liz, do you? <laughs> is it really you? <laughs> well, absolutely. We couldn't say it enough. Unfortunately, the show will air on after the day the after. I know, but there'll be more elections, God willing. We're, we're going to all have more of them. Absolutely. Liz, wait a second. So it's your opinion that the Senate will not flip in New York State? No. No shot. No. I mean, the the main question is whether the Democrats will win a, a veto-proof majority, a supermajority. They're right. They only need two seats to do it. Um, there are a lot of open seats, and there's 10 vacant seats as a result of Republican retirement. Some of those are likely pickups. 
there are some current marginal Democrats who might be on uh, in in danger. I'm not going to name any names because this is a post-election show. Absolutely. So I don't want to look too stupid. But, you know, the a supermajority. Now, just to be clear, you know, the legislature doesn't go around overriding the governor every day. It hasn't happened in quite some time. It happened a couple of times to George Pataki. Uh, which was interesting because at the time it was uh, Speaker Silver and Joe Bruno, the majority leader, who was a Republican and Silver was a Democrat, upstate, downstate. They had very com- different interests, but sometimes they got together and ganged up on Republican Pataki. Uh, Governor Cuomo, who, of course, is a very powerful individual, even more so than the executive sort of entrenched executive power that we have in New York, uh, his ability to wield that is quite significant and his political clout and prowess is significant. The legislature has never actually gone so far as to try to override one of his vetoes. It's a tough thing. Two thirds uh, vote of of both houses, just because you have a supermajority doesn't mean you're going to be able to hang everybody together. You're going to be able to have everybody present for a vote in the age of COVID. I don't even know if that's possible because, you know, people are all over the place. So, uh, but it's something to threaten him with, certainly, that has not actually been there before in the Senate. The Assembly has it. Uh, so that's what the Senate is trying to do. I don't think the Republicans are going to make a comeback, probably ever. Okay. So so wait, let, right now, are we still uh, operating state government by executive order? In which case... Yep. Um, what what does that do? And and, and Jerry, did, what does that do to the you know sort of checks and balances? And you know, the, is what's the role of the legislature if the governor is just saying, "Hey, I'm in charge, and here's the executive order, and I get to control what happens." And by the way, given, it was given ahead, here, Jonathan. It wasn't given into perpetuity, but it looks like the crisis is going to extend beyond the year. So we're going to have to address that question. And uh, the uh, legislature is also voting without being present, as Liz said. Yeah. The idea of a deliberative assembly is challenged when people aren't in the same room, even though we're unfortunately accustomed to the debates mean, meaning little or nothing in policymaking in New York because of the party discipline that, it, that prevails in the legislature. So uh, we have some very important institutional issues to face. And as I, as I tried to mention uh, Earlier, they're, they're universal. They're at every level of government. The executive has been elevated. I think it has a lot to do with changes in society, changes in communications, expect reification, what we call reification, forgive me, in, in academe, you know, centering the idea of government in one person, you know, that person's in charge. Uh, the complex separation of power system is elusive from some people. So uh, I think there's real challenges. That's why I think this, the uh, veto-proof majorities are are interesting because they offer the opportunity to assert the institution's uh, role and responsibility. I once had a conversation with Mario Cohen very quickly about this. Uh, he was, uh, I was a great admirer of his and uh, worked for him a little bit. And, and he said, Professor, you forget, when he said Professor, you knew you were in trouble because he was going to show you were completely ignorant. He, he said, Professor, you forget, they can act without me, I can't act without them. Uh, and so theoretically, they can assert themselves, but as a practical matter, it's it's it's, it's uh, unlikely. 
Well, but I mean, just to be clear, the the battle over the powers between the legislature and the executive is not new. I mean, right now, certainly there's it's one thing to chafe against the fact that you have so uh, uh, such a powerful and 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 some critics would say or have said dictatorial governor who's making all these unilateral decisions in a time of covid uh, while also writing a book and, you know, doing whatever all else he's doing. But the legislature complains about it. But yet it's actually protection for them because they can say, well, it's not my fault if you don't like X or Y or Z. Just look, it's the governor. He's just doing all this stuff. He's running rampant. I mean, and, I, and the average voter doesn't understand the intricacies of government and who gave what to whom. The legislature ceded its power, et cetera. And, you know, in the past, it has gone to, to the third branch of government, which would be the executives and uh, sorry, pardon me, the, the judicial branch and the judicial branch has reaffirmed the budgeting power at the very least of the executive. So we so we have a very strong executive here and there's been discord between the executive and legislative branches in the past. I mean, this is certainly nothing new, just like there's nothing new to see the mayor of New York City fight with the governor. It's just that right. these two personalities have just elevated it to a you know astronomical level. I mean, for me, it was uh, when I worked for Mayor Koch, uh, his relationship with uh, Governor Cuomo, uh, it was as it, it to me, historically, it seems like this only magnified due to the pandemic. Um, they didn't get along. Um, and Jerry, I'm sure you're. Well, well you know, there's, there's something Liz said that tr- triggered a point in my mind. One of the dangers of the current moment is the ceding to the judiciary, the policymaking uh, responsibility. Look, great concern about who gets onto the Supreme Court, which I thought is think is well placed. When the, when, when the uh, political branches don't work together well or work effectively in accord with the design of the system, the judiciary becomes the locus of decision. And, and that's not a good thing. It's the least democratic uh, institution in, 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 in state and national government. Well, so, so there's a dimension to, to all this that, that uh, is less discussed, less well, discussed. Also, also similarly, that has flown under the radar, but I think we're probably going to see more of it, particularly because there are a lot of, let's be clear, there's a lot of very difficult decisions that lie ahead at the federal level, the state level, local level, because of the financial crisis that we're finding ourselves in as a result of the pandemic, we're going to see a lot of pain and a lot of funding cuts. And we've already started to see it. I mean, we see the pain on the street and people are hungry and people are homeless and people are jobless. So we've seen that. But it's only the tip of the iceberg about what might be to come. And, you know, frequently we have seen uh, difficult decisions in policy at the state level kicked to unelected commissions including decisions about, say, whether or not legislatures should get a pay raise or legislators, pardon me, whether or not there should be, how, what congestion pricing should look like, whether or not there should be a plastic bag tax. Uh, you know, and I, I think similarly, that's another way that you're seeing elected officials circumvent their responsibility to make hard choices because they're afraid that voters are going to toss them out. So they don't want to make hard choices. So they're like, oh, we'll just give it to the judiciary or we'll just give it to this commission and they'll make a decision, which really is, you know, antithetical to why you get elected to represent people in government. It's it's not supposed to be an easy job. No, not at all. So it's the day after Election Day. And I, I know I didn't want to do predictions, but are we heading to the Supreme Court with this um, no matter what? I mean, is, has 
Trump laid the foundation for saying, I will not accept the outcome. So unless it is a Biden wave and there's just no doubt about it, are we heading to the court? Because the earlier decision this week by the courts with regard to when to count votes in Pennsylvania and North Carolina and Wisconsin Wisconsin, leads you to some pretty serious concerns over what may happen if it winds up in the Supreme Court. So is that where we're going? I I mean, look, (laughs) and I think it really got um, not lost in the shuffle, but it really didn't get the attention or spark the outrage that it should have. The accelerated placement uh, of Amy Coney Barrett on the on the uh, Supreme Court. I mean, I don't think that people there's just so much and people are exhausted and tired and stressed out. There's only so much you can get pissed about. But like that was something to get really pissed about, actually, because she's there now. She's there. And so uh, that really actually undercuts Roberts, who you might say what you will about his ideology, but he was trying desperately to prevent the court from being the Trump court. But now he's trumped effectively (laughs) by the right. So he you know, I hope not. I hope we don't end up there. And actually, um, you know, I do some work for the State Bar Association. We had a very interesting uh, forum recently that um, election attorney Jerry Goldfitter was the hair, uh, head of a task force on this issue of what happens now in terms of how do we count the votes and where does it go and who's got the power and all this stuff. And a lot of it actually, ha- I mean, what happens if uh, there's so many po- possibilities, one state could have a slate of faithless electors. A state could send two slates of electors. Um, who makes the decision? Actually, the statute's not entirely clear. It says it has verbiage about elect um, executives, but doesn't say who the executive is. So it could be the secretary of state, could be the governor, could be. I mean, there are so many areas and points where it, you could end up in court that you got to hope that just we just don't get there. Because, you know, if we don't by January 20th have a, a decision about who the president is, it would be acting President Pelosi, I think. Yes, that's right. It which goes to the speaker. It's kind of. Which, which, let's, would, I, I've, truth be told, I, I, I didn't hate the Electoral College for much of my career. <laughs> but I, I've come around on the question of the Electoral College being uh, undesirable. But what's not sufficiently appreciated is if we had no electoral college, we might still have the judiciary deciding the election. Depending on the closeness of the uh, vote in key states and uh, the counting rules and uh, the potential challenges to ballots and and so on. So uh, whether or not we have the electoral college, we we have the judiciary ultimately situated to choose the president. And I think that's a particularly bad, bad thing. We also have a, an interesting situation where the change in the law has not caught up with the change in administration. Historically, uh, the, the board, forgive me, uh, I don't want to be offend too many people, but the Board of Elections has been, a system in New York has been anathema. One of the last centers of patronage in New York politics, along with the judiciary. And uh, competence hasn't prevailed in every Board of Elections in New York. Particularly uh, recently, there's been a call by the mayor and the governor's endorsed this to undo the New York City Board of Election. So we have a way of counting and a process that doesn't conform to the way people are voting. 
They're voting early. They're voting absentee. We've taken down the, uh, at least temporarily, the no excuse. We've come to round to a kind of no excuse absentee voting. We have to change the constitution to make that permanent. But uh, the institutions aren't prepared to, to do the work timely. When we have these processes entrenched and long established, they get done pretty timely in, on the West Coast. But where they've just been taken up in other parts of the country, they're part of they're a big part of the problem. Election administration is boring, but it's crucial. It absolutely is to the sense that people think there was a, a fairness. And if you want to encourage people to vote, then they have to believe their vote matters. And if some other institution then makes the decision for them. I think that flies in the face of making people feel like, why should I vote? Um, you know, I was listening to the mayor of Atlanta last night, and she made a point about that this is the first time, I think, in Georgia's history, that they were voting for the president and both senators at the same time, and that there couldn't be a more important reason for you to go out and vote. You, th th this was so significant. Um, it, I, you know, aside from looking at Nate Silver's 538 and trying to understand polling, which I want to talk about a little bit, um, do we think the Senate is going to flip and the notion of the polls say X, but what people always seem to forget is that they say it's a 70% chance that one person will win and a 30% chance. But they're saying that a 30% chance that the other person will win. And I think we, we don't really understand what a poll means. So I'm kind of asking two questions. One, what do you think about polling? And what does the real meaning of that? And then let's go to, does the Senate change? Yes or no? Polls are, you know, a, a, a helpful tool and a snapshot in time. It's kind of like when you buy a car, a brand new car, and it's worth $20,000 and you drive it off the lot and all of a sudden it depreciates. The moment you step out into traffic, right, in your car, it's it goes down. So there's only one, it's like taking a picture. It, everything changes after that frozen moment when the person has answered a call, right? And answered a bunch of questions. And there's so many also different uh, vagaries that I know that pollsters have been struggling with. What about, the, and, and are they under uh, counting um, people in inner cities or because they, you know, don't, aren't reachable, they don't have landlines? Are they undercounting young people who also don't use landlines? I don't happen to have one and I'm not young or living in an inner city. So, I mean, I actually got a poll call on my cell the other day and I rejected it because I don't do them. But so that's another thing. I mean, who's doing them? Who's saying yes? Who's saying no? Who's lying? Who's not? Because that's another problem. People sort of are not really low. They don't want to tell the pollster the truth. They think for whatever reason it's inappropriate or what have you. So it's just, and there's all sorts of algorithms and, and, and um, various different math that you apply to weight it and all the rest of it. But there's a standard of deviation in every poll. So that's another thing to consider. I, I don't, I don't know. I don't put much stores by them. And certainly like the current mayor of Rochester doesn't either. So, you know, if you know the history there, if not, you can just Google it. It's not that important. But the, the, the point of the matter is polls can be wrong. Okay. And well, that's true. Polls can be wrong. 
And yet, if you have a lot of polls and you're taking them in overlapping periods or you're doing daily polling to augment the, the, the database, taking the oldest ones off and putting the, the newest ones on and, and you get systematically the same outcomes, you can be more confident that they're telling you something useful. However, you have to understand when you have a close outcome, then you don't have any outcome because a close outcome is within the range of error. So it's really telling you it's a toss up. Anybody can win. I've been getting a lot of stuff in the fundraising stuff in the mail. And uh, uh, I see Kelly is up by one point. Give us money to keep our uh, Kelly is down by one point. Give us money to, 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 to advance Kelly's situation. And uh the interesting thing is I'm getting far more about Senate races across the country than I ever did before. Uh, as this whole uh, democratic capture of the executive of the entire government is fundamental to implementing the state level priorities of the Democratic Party, which has come to rescue of the local governments and the states financially that are in trouble, including New York, which is in substantial trouble financially. So I, I think polls are useful. And, and one other thing that I always used to teach when I taught was that there was a a patina of science about them, and, and uh, it used to be legitimizing that science tell you what's going to happen. Now we have an anti-science party in, the, in this <laughs> country, just as well as uh, uh, align the view. I'm not going to believe science on this. I'm not going to believe it on a lot of other things. So it gets to be an ideological position whether to believe polls or not. It gets beyond the question of the methodology and, and the limits and the sampling and the kinds of issues that Liz talked about. Well, and so let's assume it's, it. you know, we know it's going to be Wednesday when we're listening. So the Senate is close. And the reason I'm asking is because it seems as if we can't get through the next six months without a stimulus bill. There's just too many people that are hurting. And the as much as I have concern over the size of the debt, there are just too many people that are hurting. And as long as the virus is ramping up, we need to get money to people to survive. And I, you know, so will there be a stimulus bill? I mean, I don't know how New York gets by the, the MTA, you know, say what you will about its management needs money. And it's a very important um, uh, part of the infrastructure of the New York state economy. So do we, do we get to a stimulus bill, regardless of who wins? Well, Nancy Pelosi says we will. <laughs> I mean, you know, and then Steve Mnuchin says, oh, I read about that in the newspaper. I don't know what she's talking about. I, it, it's hard to say, but I think at some point there will be a bipartisan hue and cry because the reality is that you've got localities that are run by Republicans and run by Democrats and run by independents in the case of Syracuse, for example, that uh, need money. And it's 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 not a it's not a partisan issue that people are starving all over, right? So it, it, sooner or later you're going to have. Uh, although the Senate Republicans thus far have been very dug in on their uh, reluctance to give out a lot of money um, in terms of their conservative spending habits, right? And they don't want to add to the already ridiculous insanity sized debt that we have. So I, I don't I don't 
think that uh, we can get along without it, certainly, but I don't know what it looks like after the election. Something will happen after the election. I think that's fair to say. I just don't know what it looks like. And it'll certainly be smaller if the Republicans remain in charge than it would be if Biden, I think, is in charge. But even if Biden is in charge, the cavalry is not coming to save New York. It's not going to be $60 billion that drops from the sky to solve all our problems. It's just there are going to be there's going to be cuts. There's got to be revenue enhancement and it's going to be a difficult time. Well, I, I, I think the Senate can, can flip. I think there's a chance for a historic election outcome. Um, I'm not okay. sure it happened, but I think there's a chance. Regarding the stimulus bill, I think New Yorkers need to be aware that there are different degrees of, of uh, crisis in different parts of the country. Some state budgets are, are, are in reasonable shape, the last I looked. So uh, the universal expectation or demand is not going to be there. It's going to be sub- substantial and, as Liz said, to a degree bipartisan, but it's not universal. So not every senator is going to feel the same pressures as every other senator. I also think that people who have uh, pensions like I do or uh, investments and see the stock market drop 700 points and then recover the next day 300 points, say, thank God. <laughs> if New York doesn't get the $60 billion and only gets $40 billion, New York will be a happy state. <laughs> um, Jerry, you know, do, do we go back and, you know, New York City seems to be in such bad shape fiscally. Is this, do we go back to uh, an emergency financial control board the Municipal Assistance Corporation, you know, MAC, and is there a third party entity that is going to have to um, drive New York City out of the state that it's in? Well, I, I'm, you probably, you experienced this, but I, I'm uh, really shocked about the suggestions of borrowing for operating expenses. Right, I, I and I think that's- Anybody who lived through the 70s. Right. And uh, I, I worked for Peter Goldmark, who was, who was principal in, uh, among the principals who, who's, who, who helped solve the problem. So uh, I know something informally about this. So, yes, I think we're going to get to a control board or an institutional uh, arrangement to, to, to bring the city along, especially if we get stimulus money or some kind of external source because uh, the credibility of the city's response, that it's not just going to distribute revenues and maintain the status quo. City government has grown a lot under the current mayor. And, uh, it's, and it's hard to argue that under the previous mayor, the city was not performing well. I mean, the streets were clean. Uh, social services were being delivered. City, city residents felt relatively safe. I know there are a lot of issues of race and police accountability and so on. I'm not denying those issues. Sure. We, we, we ran New York with less well. And to assure that happens, there's going to have to be, if money comes in to help the city, as I think it should be, the mass transit is the lifeblood of the city. You can't have New York City without the mass transit. So, well, 
you have to have accountability and you're going to have to have oversight and, and it's not well, you can say that about so many things dad like uh, the schools are the lifeblood of the city you can't have the city unless you have schools the the offices are the lifeblood of the city you can't have the city unless you have jobs the, the parks are the lifeblood of the city you can't have the city unless you have parks i mean like all the, the restaurants and the, the theater i mean there are so many things i do i agree of course mass transit is probably higher up on the food chain than some of those other things. But there are so many problems right now in the city. I mean, the homelessness uh, issue alone is just, and was significant prior to the pandemic, just, just to be clear. I mean, some of these issues predated the pandemic. And then subsequently, let us remember, in the middle of the pandemic, when the, when the subways were just a huge problem and nobody was riding, the governor shut them down at night to clean them. And they've been doing that. They're still doing that, actually. And they're cleaner than they've ever been, people tell me. I mean, I haven't been to the city in months, but people are telling me that the subway system, you know, it looks, looks great in terms of the of the cars although there's there's also an uptick in graffiti and there's an uptick in crime and there's there's a lot of there's just a lot of problems that uh that have to be solved um and you know there's a mayor's race next year since we're talking about elections and uh it's going to be a difficult one how about my how about my university my heart and soul about it being decimated financially potentially and actually how about the, how about the city university and how about the community colleges? I have a great friend who's been working at LaGuardia Community College for four decades, and the social mobility that arose in that place for immigrant populations and less less affluent people going to school and going to work at the same time. the The whole of of New York's commitment to 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 uh, people challenged and rising, and has been centuries long is at stake. And uh, it's emotionally powerful. Anybody who's worked their life in creating opportunity. I used to say that working for the university was one of the greatest jobs in the world because you weren't fixing a problem, however important that is. You weren't helping people with special needs who get through the day, which of course was important. What you're doing was taking the opportunity to give people a chance for a better life forever, mm-hmm. and 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 we're gonna and we're we're on the on the brink on the verge of giving that all up. That idea of what government's for, giving that up, and that's shocking and and emotionally uh, difficult. So, but Liz, let me ask you: Is this a general? Is this a generational thing also? So, like back in you know, the day when New York City went through its fiscal crisis, there was a sense of um, we've got to fix its finances. Yet, you know, there is a whole generation of people now due to social justice issues, due to environmental issues, climate change, that wouldn't that say those issues need to rise also to the top of the pile. So how does this all get sorted out, you know, either historically, Jerry, as you said earlier in the conversation, that there have been tough parts for the country. So any sense on it? Because we're still going to be polarized no matter what happens, no matter whether Biden wins, Trump wins, the country is still going to be polarized. There still will be a virus when the election, you know, you know, the, the day this airs, it'll still be a prominent concern. But um, 
I'm trying to think of how do we want to end this discussion and try to give people something positive to think about? Well, I don't think that these things don't have to all be mutually exclusive. And so, you know, I think uh, when you talk about policy, you talk about baking into policy concerns about social justice and how the climate will be impacted. And so, for example, when you are looking to incentivize development, you only agree to provide taxpayer funded initiatives to buildings that are net neutral in terms of their carbon imprint on the environment, for example. You only agree government has the ability to incentivize businesses and to give them various different perks and tax breaks. And I'm certain that that's all going to be on the table too when we uh, come back to Albany and have this discussion because that discussion's already been going on for a while. But you only agree to incentivize businesses that have an equity pledge uh, mm-hmm. in their built into their foundation of being that their board has a certain equity makeup that they agree to hire a certain percentage of New Yorkers and some of those New Yorkers are going to be people of color or people of a certain income bracket, et cetera. I mean, government can use its considerable clout to make decisions. That's what budgets are blueprints of of decisions of moral uh, investment effectively. You make a decision based on your dollars and your expenditures about what you think is important. And that's how you demonstrate and you move the consciousness of people um, and you listen to the electorate and 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 you act accordingly. I, it doesn't all have to be so striated and siloed. Okay. Jerry, I'll give you the last word. Me? Yes. You. <laughs> yes, you. So I'm going to tell you a little parable. And you, you raised the Vietnam War. When I was a graduate student uh, at Columbia in the 60s, I was going to school during the Vietnam War. And the American flag got to be a symbol of one side. Police officers and firemen wore, wore flags on their on their on their shirts. Demonstrate labor activists wore flags. They were conservative Democrats, and they confronted the students who were regarded as more radical. During 9/11, I walked down the street in uh, on the West Side, and there was a flag in every window. The crisis had created flag lovers out of every liberal Democrat on the west side of Manhattan. So we can hope and expect, we'll still be polarized, but we can hope and expect if if the crisis persists, if the costs keep being imposed on us of social uh, injustice and of uh, health, failure to address core and murderous health circumstances, we have a chance to respond collectively. And we've demonstrated that we have the capacity to do that. So that's the hope. The hope is joining to confront the crisis because it challenges all of us and creates a certain unity, at least in the moment. Um, Dr. Gerald Benjamin, Liz Benjamin, thank you so much for your time. I'm sure this is a conversation that that would go on for hours, but um, thank you for your time this morning. You should should come to our house sometime and see how that goes. (laughs) (laughs) No one can stand. It's insupportable to hang out with us. It becomes a long diatribe of various different political war stories. 
Thank pleasure. You. Great pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity. Oh, well, thank you both very much. Thank you for tuning in to Patterns and Paradigms, the Pattern Podcast. For more information about this episode, visit our website, patternforprogress.org forward slash podcast.